Let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before the word, shall we? Well, Father, as we this morning look at these pastoral epistles of Paul, Father, may we see through them to see our great shepherd, the one who lovingly cares for and tends for his sheep and for the church. And Father, help us to see the encouragement, the instruction, the edification, Lord, that was given to these individuals. But Lord, is equally applicable to us in our own lives, our own walk, right now and through this, this coming week and the days ahead of us. So Father, this morning we just pray that you speak to us each individually. Lord, we're in different places. Lord, we have different concerns, different situations we face. But Father, you know each and every heart. You know where we are. And so Father, we pray by your grace you speak to each of us individually. But Lord, also speak to us as a body of believers that we would continue to grow in knowledge and grace. We just give you this time this morning. We pray now your blessing upon your word as we just ask your Holy Spirit to reveal it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are going to be looking at the pastoral epistles. So that's first and second Timothy, Titus and Philemon. So they're not particularly long books in and of themselves, um, but they are packed with uh, really important doctrinal uh, teaching, uh, instruction uh, and edification. So uh, I'm sure that we'll find uh, many blessings as we go through this. Um, just to start with. And we've recapped this a few times in recent weeks, looking through the New Testament. Um, Paul wrote 13 epistles um, in total. Uh, We've got seven churches that were addressed by Paul. um, And then we've also got these pastoral epistles um, that we're going to be looking at this morning. So again, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon are all written to individuals. Whereas all the others were written to churches, these ones were written to individuals. And so we're going to see a a, a slightly different emphasis compared to Paul. Other uh, writings, other letters that he wrote. So, uh, well, first of all, uh, Timothy, uh, we're going to be looking at first. Uh, He met and joined Paul on his second missionary journey. So, Paul had gone out the first missionary journey, um, and then it's the second missionary journey uh, where Paul meets up with Timothy, and we'll look at that in a moment. Um, Timothy's grandmother. And also mother uh, seems to have both been converted and quite possibly during Paul's first missionary journey. Um, so on that first trip that Paul had gone out uh, with Silas, um, that seems to be the occasion when the gospel had gone out to, to where they are. We'll look at locations in a moment. Um, and as a result of that, um, their, Timothy's grandmother and mother uh, seemingly were converted. And on the back of that, Timothy himself. And Titus, on the other hand, was a direct convert through Paul. Um, so Paul was uh, the one responsible for preaching, teaching Titus, bringing him to that, that, that knowledge of the Lord. Uh, and of course, all we can do with people is to give them the gospel. We can tell them the truth. We can't convert people. You know, it's the Lord who brings salvation. The Lord is the one who saves. Uh, we can't save people. What we can do is give them the information. Um, and the Holy Spirit will bring that conviction of sin. That's one of the things that Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit will do uh, back in that uh, uh, upper room discourse in John's gospel, um, there Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction of sin. And that's exactly what he does do and brings that place of recognizing we need a savior. 
you know. We're not uh, formally introduced to Titus uh, as such. We don't know where um, his, his journeying was before he meets Paul, but he becomes one of Paul's most trusted companions, and we'll see that uh, in Paul's writing to him. And then finally, Philemon, this other individual, so there's three individuals, Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon, uh, was a member of the church at Coloss, and clearly, as we see, he was a friend of Paul's. Uh, again, Paul, very much uh, um, concerned for and caring for the church at Coloss. Again, doesn't seem to be a church that was itself formed and planted by Paul. We looked at that when we were looking at the letter to the Colossians, um, but Paul clearly has uh, a real passion uh, for this church and so on. In regards to time of writing, if you look at uh, all sorts of different um, Bible commentaries and so on, you're going to get different dates. We don't really know, uh, but it does seem that Philemon was the first of these, written somewhere around 60 AD. Uh, the letter seems to be sent from Rome, with also the letter to the Colossians. So this letter, if you remember, we mentioned when we were looking at Colossians, um, that when this letter of the Colossians is sent, then this one to Philemon is also sent as well, because they're going to the same location. First Timothy seems to have been written around about 64 AD, some, somewhere in Greece, uh, quite possibly from Corinth or so on. Uh, Titus, uh, that was written around about 65 AD, again from Greece. Uh, and then finally, the last of Paul's writing, Second Timothy, uh, right at the end of Paul's mis- um, um, uh, ministry, end of his uh, mission, as it were, uh, before the Lord uh, took him back home. And then written round about somewhere, about 68 AD, uh, from Macedonia as well. So after Paul had been imprisoned um, and then released and so on, uh, this final letter is written. So that's just give you some idea. So let's start with um, the letters to Timothy, first of all. Now, Paul talks of Timothy as being a son in the faith. We'll look at that in just a moment. But just to give us the background, on the second missionary journey, um, Paul leaves from Antioch. Uh, again, sorry, I think I said earlier the first missionary journey was Paul and Silas. Sorry, it's Paul and Barnabas, the first missionary journey. They come off through Cyprus and then off the mainland. The second journey is when Paul goes with Silas. Um, and so we go from Antioch uh, through the places of the churches Paul had planted through Derby, Lystra. And it's in this area, Lystra and Iconium, uh, that we find that Paul meets up with Timothy. Let's just do a little bit of uh, background reading in the book of Acts, chapter 16. And we read there, he came to Derby and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. Okay, so she'd already been converted, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And now... When we look at Second Timothy, that's the kind of the introduction we have to this this kind of uh, relationship. Second uh, Timothy chapter one verse five, um, we read there Paul speaking. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lewis and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. So again, just talking of this family relationship. I mean, how many times have we said how important grandparents are? Now, some of you are grandparents, and you know you have an important role. My own gran uh, had such an impact on my own life, and I've said before, um, I used to get home from school, 
Mum used to give me the paper to take down to Gran, and I used to take it down there. And Gran used to take the paper off me, and then we'd you know make me a drink. We'd sit down, and then she'd just read to me Oswald Chambers, and a lot of it went over my head. Um, but she'd always talk to me of things of the Lord, and she'd always talk about Israel and what was going on. You know, and those early years, it made such an impact on me. Um, you know, and that's why I just encourage you as a grandparent: nothing is wasted. You know, just use every opportunity to talk to your grandchildren. Um, you know, so. They, uh, they do say that grandchildren uh, are a grandparent's reward for not killing your own children. Um, so, um, but, you know, grand, grandchildren, um, they can be so influenced by the things that you say as a grandparent. Um, so I just encourage you, just keep using those opportunities. Because we have a biblical example here of a, a godly grandmother who had obviously raised a godly daughter. Um, you know, and again, we don't know at the point where they were converted, um, but the Lord was clearly at work in this family. And Timothy goes on to do some great things for the Lord. Well, Timothy's background itself... As we said, um, father was a Greek and a Jewish mother that we've just mentioned. Uh, we don't have any mention of his father being a Christian, uh, but again, grandmother Lewis, we know, uh, was sincere in the faith. Um, Timothy was no doubt living in Lystra when Paul visited that city on the first missionary journey. So, Paul, uh, so Timothy may well have heard of these things, seen some of the things that Paul was doing. Again, would have been a bit younger at that point. And as I say, it may well have been on that occasion uh, that his mother and uh, grandmother uh, heard the gospel and uh, converted um, became Christians. But obviously, Timothy had earned a good reputation. We're told that. We just saw that a moment ago. Um, Paul probably didn't lead him to Christ. It would seem he was already a believer. Um, but clearly, Paul recognized God's call on this young man's life. And Paul invited Timothy to join him in the ministry. He recognized that he had the right character. He had a real zeal, a love for the Lord, and so on. <clears throat> well, Timothy knew and believed the Old Testament scriptures. So, I mean, that tells us something. You know, it's not just about his conversion to Christianity, but he obviously had a background in the Jewish scriptures, in Judaism. So, you know, there's obviously some uh, training and information, uh, spiritual education that had been given even prior to his conversion. Uh, and clearly that stays with him. Um, and again, this promise uh, that he showed uh, for um, serving the Lord was recognized fairly early in those scriptures. You can see reference there. Um, there were certain prophetic utterances um, that also confirmed Timothy's appointment. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had somebody pray with you or pray over you um, and say something, you know, uh, along the lines of, you know, I feel the Lord is going to use you or do this or do that. Certainly many people, uh, many believers have been in that situation. You know, sometimes it's years before those things come to fruition. You know, and it's sometimes, you know, for the person that has been prayed for, it can seem like a, almost an eternity waiting. But, you know, we see that throughout Scripture. We see that with the call of Abraham. Abraham, you know, is 75 years of age um, when he's, um, well, prior to that he's called. It's 75 when he gets to the promised land. Uh, when he finally arrives in Israel. Um, and then he has to wait another 25 years to see God fulfill this promise of him having a child and so on. You know, and we, so many examples in scripture. I mean, David is another one. Moses is another one who spent so long in training and waiting. You know, promises were given. David was anointed by Samuel. And then he waited and waited and waited. Finally, he gets invited to go and serve with the king. You know, to play, play his musical instrument. And then finally we have that situation with Goliath and he's invited to effectively take charge of the army. And you think, this is it. Next thing's going to happen. Saul's going to abdicate. David's there. He's king. And the next thing, David's fleeing for his life. 
You know, we read so much of the, the trauma that David went through in the book of Psalms. So many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Um, you know, I think it's the single largest category in the book of Psalms is Psalms of lament. God understands suffering and pain. He understands those situations we go through. But all through that experience, the Lord was with David, again, Abraham, and so many other uh, individuals we could mention in Scripture. Timothy, again, had had these things said over him of how the Lord was going to use him. Uh, at what stage in his life, how early that had been, we don't know. Um, but again, you know, if that's something that's happened to you, don't rush, don't wait, don't, don't run for the fulfillment. The Lord will do those things. If it's of the Lord, it will happen in the Lord's timing. Uh, and the Lord is always uh, faithful in fulfilling his promises. Well, Paul obviously becomes like a spiritual father to, to Timothy. And First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he refers to as my true son in the faith. And uh, Second Timothy, and also in Philippians, uh, he's referred to as my dear son. So it becomes a very special kind of bond, a very special relationship between Paul and Timothy. So as a result of this, Paul does take Timothy to be his companion, uh, to travel with him, and he becomes one of Paul's most trustworthy uh, labourers. And Paul and Titus very much, very, very similar in that kind of regard. Um, you know, Paul speaks of people that have deserted him, people that have left him, but Titus remains true, Timothy remains true, on how we need Christians that stay true. Not just to the Lord, that's obviously the most important thing, but true to each other. That we support each other, that we're there for each other, that we understand Galatians 6 verse 2, which is to bear one another's burdens. You know, it's so important because we live in a world that is so fickle. Everybody's out for their own ends. But, you know, the church should be so different. You know, we looked earlier on this morning from John's Gospel, um, you know, being Remembrance Sunday, looking at that verse, greater love is no man than this that a man laid down his life for his friends. The verse preceding that says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And love is all about giving. You know, and that's what we've been commanded as Christians. We should love each other. We should give to each other. We should be doing things for each other. And as I've said before, you know, try every week as you go through the week, ask yourself a question. What have I done for somebody else in the fellowship this day or this week? You know, and every week we should be looking to do something for each other. And even if, and this is not an even if, but even if we just pray. You know, what a big thing that is to pray for each other. You know, we've heard testimony this morning already of how God works through those prayers. You know, it's never wasted. It's never meaningless, you know. Uh, and even if the other person doesn't know you prayed for them, still pray. You know, you don't do it to gain recognition or favor. You do it because you're being obedient to the Lord who said that we should love one another. Well, six of Paul's epistles actually include Timothy in the salutations, in the greetings. Um, so, again, the list there is there. You can look at those at uh, your leisure. <clears throat> Timothy, as we said, had this mixed parentage. Now, this is an interesting situation because as a result of this, as we saw from Acts a moment ago, Paul then makes the decision to have Timothy circumcised. Now, the strange thing is that it's just um, somewhere around about this time, and probably just before the second missionary, in fact, it was just before the second missionary journey, we read in Acts 15 that one of the things that was not a requirement for somebody who was converting to Christianity, somebody who was either a Gentile or even for a Jew, there was no requirement to be circumcised. 
You know, it was recognized that that was something that was a very peculiar thing given to Israel. But there's no such burden that's placed upon Gentiles or anybody converting to Christianity from that point. So technically, there was no need for Timothy to be circumcised. And yet Paul goes goes ahead and does it. So the question is, why? Well, clearly, Paul felt that the mission, the work they were going to do, would be much smoother if this had taken place. And it's very much what Paul says, that, you know, it's, I've become all things to all men, that by all means I may win some. And, and, you know, if there's something that's going to be a stumbling block and it's going to prevent us from preaching the gospel, well, let's get rid of it. And so, as a result of this, it seems to be this is the reason why. And Titus, incidentally, was not compelled to be circumcised. But as we read in Acts, the Jews around had known that Timothy's father was a Greek. And so Paul specifically goes ahead and has this done so that the Jews are not going to be offended. It just provides opportunity to preach the gospel. There's a lot in the whole idea of circumcision, of cutting away the flesh life. And uh, maybe sometime we can explore that more, because from a spiritual perspective, there's so much uh, tied up with that. Um, But uh, we'll move on for now. So again, Paul wanted to maximize the effectiveness of Timothy's ministry uh, and so on. He just didn't want it to be uh, an offense. Well, after being released from his first Roman imprisonment with uh, Timothy by his side, uh, evidently uh, he revisits some of the churches in Asia, including Ephesus. Now, on his departure from Ephesus, Paul left Timothy behind to provide leadership to the congregation. So effectively, Timothy is placed in this kind of pastoral role by Paul at Ephesus. Uh, Again, this is after that first imprisonment. And then after an interval, Paul writes to Timothy a letter, which is First Timothy, urging him to carry on in that ministry. You know, and I love this about Paul. You know, we're all so busy, aren't we, doing things. And yet Paul, I mean, are any of us any busier than Paul was? I mean, he had to travel by foot everywhere he went, pretty much. Um, you know, so many other things he was doing, so many individuals he was kind of responsible for in one way or another, people he'd brought to the Lord. And yet he takes time to write to Timothy, to find out how he's doing. I mean, just, just love this concern, this kind of this pastoral nature of Paul is, is a wonderful example for all of us. <clears throat> well, the breakdown, the breakdown uh, of First Timothy, uh, in the first chapter, it's really talking about the faith of the church, doctrinal issues are addressed. Then the second chapter, the order of the church, the officers of the church. In the third chapter, the fourth chapter, there's a warning about the apostasy that's going to come. Uh, and then five and six, it's really talking about the duties, the responsibilities of those involved within the life, the work, the ministry of the church itself. And again, so the background is very much, this is a, a letter to somebody that's within, in a church environment, uh, some responsibility over the congregation as to how things should be and, and so on. So that's what we're going to look at briefly as we go through just some verses from First Timothy. So... The opening of First Timothy just says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God. Now, sometimes Paul says, by the will of God, but this time he says, by the commandment of God. I think this is quite significant. Paul is just highlighting here that it's not about Paul's desire. Paul hasn't set himself up in this position. God has appointed him to this role. And as such, there's a responsibility, there's a, an expectation, there's an accountability And, you know, the same for you. God has given you a commandment into the work, the missionary field, the ministry or whatever that you have. 
And so there's an expectation, there's an accountability to God himself of how you are doing with the talents he's given you. And of course we have that parable that Jesus gives us of those talents. You know, have you just buried your talents in the ground? You know, or have you invested them? Have you put them into use for the Lord? So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Saviour, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. What a statement that is. You know, again, Jesus Christ is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. Sometimes we have grace and mercy. Um, sometimes it's grace and peace. Here we have all three. Grace, mercy, and peace. You know, there's a, there's a lot of affection shown to this young man by Paul. Uh, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I, in fact, just to back up there, notice we've already seen there two references to Jesus. Firstly, Jesus is our hope, but also Jesus is our Lord. And Jesus needs to be both of those things. Not just a saviour, but also Lord of our lives. And that means we've got to submit uh, in all things to him. Verse 3 says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now notice the first thing that Paul says to Timothy that he should be doing. I think this is hugely significant because we live in a time where doctrine within the church is largely put to one side. It was very interesting. Yesterday at the creation conference, uh, we had a little Q&A session at the end. And one of the questions that was asked was, um, you know, this individual was going to a church where the, the minister of that church didn't believe or didn't speak or teach about creation because it might be offensive to people. You know, and the question was, what should they do? And I, I just find it fascinating that we have people in positions of authority, pastors, ministers, vicars, whatever title they go by, that they don't labour in the word and doctrine. That's what they should be doing. And Paul here, as a pastor over this congregation, is charged that they don't teach any other doctrine. Stick to the basic fundamentals of the faith. I think this is so significant. You see, Paul is actually going to highlight doctrine 12 times to Timothy. You know, this isn't some side issue. What we believe is of paramount importance. You see, because doctrine is intrinsically linked to salvation. And it's interesting as we go on, we see we must discern between good doctrine and bad doctrine. And Paul will make that point very clear to Timothy as he writes to him. That there is bad doctrine and there's good doctrine. Why does it matter? Because really, ultimately, this is all tied up with our salvation. If we follow bad doctrine, well, yes, we may ourselves be saved, but we're not going to help others. In fact, we can lead others astray. And of course, we give very strict warnings about leading people uh, astray, away from the gospel. Again, Paul will tell Timothy that a minister, somebody who is serving in some capacity as a, in a pastoral nature, should labour in the word and doctrine. And that's the right way down around because you know we don't start with the doctrine, we don't start with our opinions, we start with the word. That's where doctrine comes from. Joe Foch, uh, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia in America, said this, and I just think this is such a great, simple explanation of what doctrine is and how we decide. He says, if it's taught in the book of Acts and expounded on in the epistles, it becomes church doctrine. You see, it's not the doctrine of the apostles, it's the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's that which Jesus had taught the apostles. 
They then expound on that. They talk about that. It comes up in the book of Acts and expounded on in the epistles. And we see these doctrines come to the fore through the New Testament. And it becomes the bedrock, the foundation of the faith. It's, if you like, the foundations are non-negotiable fundamentals of what we believe. It's what defines us as Christians. Now, the problem is you can get somebody coming in with a different view, a different set of doctrines. But it doesn't change what are the foundational, fundamental basics of Christianity. And somebody coming in with their own view or opinion or idea, or with a, a different doctrine, you know, it's... Look, poor analogy, but let me just... You know, if somebody has a religion that is to worship oak trees, okay, and somebody else comes in and a little while down the line says that, well, why can't we worship sycamore trees as well? Well, you go do that, but you can't change what we already had. What we already had was to do this. You can't bring something else. Poor example, but hopefully you understand the point I'm trying to make. You know, Christianity is defined not by opinion, not by culture, not by what we think, but by what Jesus taught. And it's not something that we can negotiate over. It's not something that, from a cultural perspective, we can say, well, that was then, now it's different. It's absolutely the bedrock. And they are fixed, they are solid. And as we go through, Paul really encourages Timothy to, again, really take heed to these doctrines. Now, there's a second part to this. Because... A few verses later on, verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy there, Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience, out of faith unfeigned. You see, this is doctrine's precious companion. Because you can't just have doctrine and rules and laws and this is how we do it. That's not what the New Testament teaches us. The doctrine is absolutely fundamental. But everything should be done in love. The end of the commandment is charity. And of course, we recognize that charity is love, and the modern translations will have love for us. I like the word charity because it gives the idea of giving for others at your own expense. You know, when you think of charity, you know, you are giving to other people something of that which you have at your expense. And that's exactly what love is. Sometimes we kind of lose sight of the, the words we have, and love becomes, it means all sorts of things in our, our culture today. But that's really what this is about. You know, the doctrine is important, but we should also be looking to give to others, to help others, to encourage others. It's not just about some setting some rules. <clears throat> well, Timothy goes on again within the first chapter of uh, the first letter. Um, we see one of our great allies here and we read, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. What does that mean? It's basically saying that the law has a purpose. If we use it for the purpose which it was designed, and we're told in Psalm 19, that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's what the law is given for. The law is there to convert us. How does it convert us? By exactly what we saw when we looked in Galatians. By confining all under sin. The law will show you that you're sinful. Not just by your actions, but as Paul highlights in the book of Romans, he, he kind of uses the, the vernacular saying he was slain when he realized that the law was talking about covetousness. And that's not an action on the outside. That's within his heart. And Paul realized that the law had just declared him guilty before a holy God. But that's what the law is there for. To show that we need a savior. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Paul said to the Galatians. But, you know, once we're saved, we don't need that schoolmaster any longer. So the law is there. If we use it lawfully, it's really good. 
to use it in evangelism, to use it for the lost. And we're told quite clearly in verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man. It's not made for somebody who is already right with God. But for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners. And then that passage carries on listing all those kind of people that the law is made for. The law is made for the people who are not right with God to show them that they're not right with God. So they've got no excuse. The law very clearly just stops the mouths of anybody that would dare to contradict. And of course our own own hearts, our own conscience bears witness of that as well. Another one of the great allies that Paul speaks to Timothy about is prayer. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. You know, in a sense what Paul is doing here is giving Timothy the tools he needs for ministry. Oh, the law is so important because it's that which will bring people to their knees before a holy God. But we also need prayer. We cannot dissociate prayer from any of our actions as Christians. And it says, not only just pray for all men, but then specifically for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a, peace, a quiet and peaceable life in all goodliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of, uh, of God our Saviour, who will have all men be saved to come unto the knowledge of the truth. What a statement that is as well, verse 4, that God wants all men to be saved. Uh, you know, there are those that hold on to very uh, um, strict Calvinistic viewpoints um, who would actually kind of bypass this verse, really, because this is saying that God wants everyone to be saved. There isn't some elect group. Of course, God is outside of time. He knows ahead of time those who will be saved. Of course he does. But as this verse clearly says, God wants everyone to be saved. And it's not a special elect group that only they can be saved. No, no, no. Everybody can be saved. And that's why we need to preach the word in season, out of season. You know, witness wherever we get opportunity. And the, the, the funny thing is, and certainly, you know, Peter, Malcolm, Jared have testified to this, and many of you are inexperienced, you've been there. But when you speak to people about the Lord, very often there's not an aggressive, I don't want to know. But there's actually a, please tell me more. People genuinely are looking for answers. And we've got the answers. We've got the best source of information on the earth regarding the human condition. Again, God wants all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Well then, Paul lays some ground rules. We're told in uh, verse 11, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to learn in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Now, again, we need to understand the context from what we're told historically. At this time, the women in the services were being quite rowdy, quite noisy, and so on. And so Paul was saying that, you know, there's got to be some sort of order in the church. The women should learn in silence and subjection. But, you know, we need to understand the whole context of this because women should be subject to their husbands. And, of course, there's a flip side to that. Again, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Big study all on its own. But, you know, Paul is here talking about the order of things as they should be. And notice what he says. Again, the basis for what he says. Again, not for a woman not to, um, to teach or to usurp, have this authority over a man. 
He says the reason for it is because Adam was formed, for, formed first, then Eve. So the basic of this instruction isn't cultural, but spiritual. And this is the way God has done it. It's interesting, again, we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and God again sets his hierarchy, the order. We have God, Jesus, man, and woman. And of course, women sometimes get upset because they're at the bottom of that list. But the simple question is, is Jesus any less than God? No. Jesus is God. You know, is woman any less than man? No. You know, but we have been given different roles. And this is the order that God has ordained. So, Paul addresses these things. And we read as it goes on then some more ground rules. This is a true saying. If any man desire the office of a bishop. Now, in the context, a bishop typically would be an elder. Uh, an elder possibly given greater responsibility. But somebody who has oversight over other people within the church. And not in the way that we tend to think of a bishop in today's uh, uh, culture and things, with the way the church system has it today. Um, so there's a true saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. It's a good thing. But a bishop then must be blameless. <laughs> if only that were, were true today, all of the bishops as we have them. But a bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. One wife is sufficient. I'm not, that's, you know, it's, that's the way God has designed it. It's all vigilant, sober, of good behaviour, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. We're told that it should be one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And we're told very clearly, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how should he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, the people in the world, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, that's a very simple list of those that should be in responsibility uh, within a church. You know, sadly, uh, so many things in that list are omitted from many people that uh, hold these positions of authority within churches. But it's very simple, and the reasons are stated within that portion as to why those things are there. But then we're told about the deacons as well. Now, deacons typically, from a biblical perspective, are those that don't necessarily have a direct teaching responsibility or a pastoral responsibility in that sense, but they have a uh, a ministry of helping, uh, of assisting the church, taking care of very often of practical issues within the church. And so we're told, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. You know, let me just read the rest of this. Uh, And let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. It's it's a very important principle, and I think many churches adopt this kind of approach. Certainly, uh, back in Deal we had this, and it's a a way that we do it here at this fellowship. You know, if somebody comes in, you don't immediately point them to a position. Now, there's a reason for that, and actually we'll we'll talk about it in a moment. Um, But we're told that they should be proven first. They should be given an opportunity to demonstrate their willingness to serve, their obedience to the Lord in all things. And then, if you're faithful with the little, you'll give them more. It's a simple biblical principle. You know, and so those who are to be deacons and have this kind of office and responsibility within a church environment, again, this is the simple list of how you should be. And it's a good thing. It's a great opportunity to serve the Lord in, in the ways that, uh, and typically God will give in those individuals the gifts they need to be able to do that. One of them being patience. 
but we carry on. Because in chapter 4, 1 Timothy, Paul then gives Timothy some warning signs of what to expect. He says, now in the, the Spirit speaks expressly. That's a very strong term. The Spirit speaks expressly. This is really, pay attention and take note of this. That in the latter times, well we're here now, we're living in these days. Some shall depart from the faith. And we've seen it. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So again, those bad doctrines. So there will be doctrines that will be coming into the church that are not of God. They're doctrines of devils. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. I um, When we were redecorating our lounge, um, I'd been bought some new chisels uh, by my mother-in-law for Christmas. Uh, and I'd want, wanted these for a while. They're really nice chisel set. And I was just working on a bit of wood. And um, not quite sure why, but I had the chisel here. And my other hand was steadying the wood up here. And the chisel slipped. And, ooh, and then I just noticed there's a kind of big flap of skin. And I've lost the feeling there now. Uh, it's all right. It's all back together. Can, you know, God makes these things heal, doesn't he? But, um, but I've lost the feeling. And that's just what this is saying. You know, conscience is seared as with a hot iron. And if you touch yourself with something hot, again, you can lose the sensation, you can lose the feeling. And people have become so seared, as it were, in their conscience, that they no longer feel bad about things that are bad. They no longer react to sin in the way that that we should do. You know, God abhors sin. And yet for many people, it's like, oh, it's all right. No, sin is a detestable thing that will cause countless numbers to spend an eternity in hell. But so many people are coming in, they're bringing these doctrines of devils, uh, speaking lies, in hypocrisy, double standards. I mean, how many people criticize the church for being hypocritical? And is it surprising when you look in from the outside and you see so many of these things? So many supposed great leaders within the church and key figures within the church um, found having affairs and immoral relationships and all sorts of other things going on. So hypocritical. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. But interesting also that one of the things we're told is forbidding to marry. What an interesting statement in the days we live. Because hasn't marriage been totally redefined now? You know, and you know, this is one of those doctrines of demons that's coming in and how many churches are embracing it. Forbidding to marry. And commanding to abstain from meats. Well, what about halal stuff? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, we're told that these will happen in the last days, and all these things are going on before us. That you know, certain meats we're told you shouldn't eat that. You mustn't eat. You must only eat halal. And it actually is quite annoying sometimes when you go to a supermarket and you can't find the meat you want to buy because everything you're finding is labelled halal now. I got very offended once. I went to a subway. and I wanted to get um, a sausage breakfast uh, bap thing, and um, I realised, as they were kind of toasting it for me, that it was halal. And I thought, well, actually then, that's not going to be sausage meat. I want my sausage meat. I was quite upset by that. I asked the lady, and she said, I'm sorry, we only do that. So I said, okay, I won't come back. I haven't. Um, you know, but we've got to that stage that we actually, these kind of commands are coming in. We can't, we, we, there's certain meats, in a sense, in some places now you can't have. I don't think this is just, you know, side comments. I think this is exactly what the word of God is saying was going to happen. To which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. <sighs> and then another great verse. For bodily exercise profits little. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think this is fantastic. You know, we're going to get new bodies one day. And I think those new bodies are going to be fairly fit and healthy. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. Now, of course, we should, we should look after our bodies, no question about that. 
but it does profit little. And I do think it's interesting how many how many people put so much emphasis and effort into their physical frame and put no emphasis on the spiritual. You know, there are people, and I'm not criticising people that get involved in charity runs or whatever because it's a good thing, but you know, so many will quite happily skip church to go and run. I, I, you know, look, maybe it's just me. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to do that. When I was younger, I had the opportunity. I, was, I used to play uh, in a, a local football team. And they started deciding they were going to train on a Sunday morning. So I said, well, I can't come. And it meant that I couldn't play in the games. So I, okay. Because, you know, church was way more important than the football. I loved the football. I really enjoyed playing. I, mean, I probably wasn't going to be a David Becker or anything, in fairness. But, you know, I enjoyed playing. I really did. But compared to going to church and being amongst God's people and worshipping God and learning more of him, those things of the world, really, in the light of eternity, will we look back and regret those decisions? No, I don't think so. I think people who have chosen to put God first and to exercise ourselves spiritually, that's a much better use of our time. We're told that godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. <clears throat> now, Another lesson that we're told in First Timothy, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of another man's sins, keep thyself pure. What is this saying? Well, laying hands, we need to understand, symbolizes identification with the recipient. That's what laying hands is all about. Okay, The high priest typically would lay hands on the sacrifice as a way of being identified with this animal that was going to bear his sin or the sins of the nation. So that was why the hands were laid on. It's identification with. The believers laid hands on those that were going out on their missionary journeys. By identification. You are going in my stead. That was what they were saying. And now, Paul's warning us here. Be careful who you are identified with. Now, there is a physical element of here saying don't lay hands on people, you know, and you suddenly get somebody coming in the church and, you know, be careful who you lay hands on. That's, there's certainly a church element to this. But the real principle behind this is be careful who and what you are identified with. What do you allow yourself to be identified with? You know, and in a sense, we're seeing, you know, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Don't become an accomplice. Kind of guilty by association. You become associated with somebody else. You kind of, you accept what they're doing. You become identified with what they're doing. And actually you therefore become guilty because of that association. And then we're told, keep yourself pure. Keep yourself uncontaminated. Be very careful what you approve. And what you say to other people. Oh, this is good. You know, it could be all sorts of things. It could be a, a film. Oh, this film was really, really good. And somebody else watches it and they think, how on earth, as a Christian, did you find that acceptable? Or it could be uh, an individual that you know, a, a, a speaker, teacher, whatever. Oh, this person's really good. Okay, well, check them out. Make sure you know what they're saying. You know, don't become identified with things. Don't become contaminated unless you know. Proverbs speaks of not becoming surety for a stranger. The same idea, the same concept. And then in chapter 6, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not a problem in itself. And God ordains kind of private ownership. We see that right the way from, from Genesis onwards. 
But the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some um, coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, God in his faith, love, patience, meekness. Okay, just a few verses from Second Timothy. Because the, just the background again, Timothy has become so dear to Paul. That this is now the Apostle's last message. It's a touching appeal to really see Timothy strengthened in the faith now that Paul was getting to the kind of close of his ministry, getting ready to depart. But it was also a plea for Timothy to come and join him in his final days of imprisonment, uh, that they might mutually encourage each other. Quite simply, the background or the, the, the um, breakdown. The first chapter just deals with these uh, afflictions and suffering in the church, the activity of the church, and then finally the allegiance of the church. So Paul starts with a word of encouragement. Seemingly, Timothy had got a little bit discouraged. And he says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. So Paul laid hands on Timothy, but rightly so, because he wanted to be identified with him. Yeah, he wanted to be named alongside Timothy. Timothy, in some sense, was going out in Paul's stead in ministry. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, even in that, you just detect that maybe Timothy had got to that point of feeling a little discouraged. A couple of times, you know, Paul is, uh, speaks to Timothy about not being concerned about your youth. And it is easy to get discouraged. We all get discouraged. And Paul just says, you know, just get stirred up. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the calling that God has put upon your life. You know, God's not giving you a spirit of fear. You don't be frightened. You know, if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. But we should have power, love, a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You know, why would any of us be ashamed? But, you know, there are times we are ashamed. There are situations that we think, oh, I won't say anything. I might be embarrassed or it might make me look bad. And once again, we put our own name before God's name. And it says, don't be ashamed of me either as, as this prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You know, Paul really just saying in that, it's a joy to serve. You know, and if you get afflicted because of it, well, so. You know, th- these light afflictions are working a more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Who has saved us and called us with an, a holy calling. I mean, God has called you. Not according to our works, according to his own purpose and grace, which was, in, uh, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. So Paul's saying the reason I'm suffering is because of all that God has done, because of all that he's called me to. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What a great word of encouragement. You know, as you go through trials in your own lives, as you go through difficult times, just to remember that you've been chosen. We read earlier from from John's Gospel, you know, we should be bearing fruit. But we've been chosen, we've been appointed. You know, for all that he's done, we've been given gifts, and we need to be using them for his glory, those talents we were talking about earlier, investing them in things of the Lord. Because God is faithful, 
And I love again, let me just read. I know whom I have believed. That's Jesus. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's our very souls, our lives. Now therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.1. What a great verse again this is. Because we could spend probably a couple of weeks unpacking this verse on its own. Just be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's the acronym I think is quite apt, but grace being God's riches at Christ's expense. But the riches of God are available for us as we walk through our lives, as we go through any circumstance. God's riches are available because of Christ's sacrifice for us. In the second chapter we read, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Rather fitting being remember at Sunday today, as we think of those that you know, are disciplined in their walk, in their, in their, uh, their lives as soldiers, and uh, in the Air Force, the RAF, and Navy, and so on. Such discipline. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has, in, has chosen him, who has enlisted him, to be a soldier. And that's how it should be. You know, there is a kind of a, a military uh, overtone to what Paul is saying here in regard to the fact that we are to be as if we were in an army because we are fighting a spiritual war. This next portion was a major defining moment for me. Let me just read this and I'll explain why. This is 2 Timothy picking up from verse chapter 2 verse 19. Nevertheless the foundations or foundation of God stands sure having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. And let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are only vessels of gold and of silver but also of wood and earth and some to honour and some to dishonour. If any man there purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. Many years ago, I was sat as a, probably somewhere in the region of about 18, 19 years old. I was sat at the church that I'd grown up in. I'd been there from a child. I mean, literally, you know, from the moment I was born, I was going each week. I loved the church. I loved everything about the church. I was involved in the youth group. I was involved in the music team. I played drums every Sunday. You know, and it just, it was home to me. My grand had gone there. My mum and dad had gone there and still went there. But a new minister had come in and week on week on week, he would stand up and teach things that were just contrary to scripture. One of the occasions he turned to the book of Psalms and it clearly said at the top, a psalm of David. And he just started saying, well, the psalmist, whoever he was. David. It says David. <laughs> whoever he was, it's David. And there was many other things where the word of God was being undermined. And there was no love at all of, uh, of the word in terms of understanding its integrity and accuracy. You know, Genesis was dismissed as being fables. Israel were dismissed as being, you know, over and done with now. And these things were coming out. And there was no real solid teaching, but it was just little comments. And I became more and more uncomfortable. So I decided in the Sunday morning, after the, the worship time and so on, that I would sit down and read my Bible during the sermon because I felt it was far more profitable. And this particular passage I read, and that morning I read it. And it was, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. That really spoke to my heart. 
the God knows all those who are his. You know, if you truly are his, God knows and God knows you. And then let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And I thought, well, Lord, what are you saying? You know, are you saying that I'm in a place where there's iniquity? I certainly felt very uncomfortable. And then he went on, but in a great house. And I thought, well, this is a pretty great house, this big building I'm in. There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and earth. Some to honour and some to dishonour. And then, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel. And God uh, sanctified meat for the master's use, prepared for every good work. And the Lord really spoke to my heart and said, you've got to leave. And it was the hardest decision I ever made at that point. Because my family was still there. Everybody I knew, all my friends were there. But I left. And I went to another church. And I was there for eight months, and the Lord was very gracious, and I grew. And, you know, as I said before, they didn't teach the Bible, because um, they were concerned it might upset people, but they at least believed it. And that was a good start. And then, finally, the Lord allowed the fellowship and deal, as uh, it is now, uh, become Calvary Chapel Deal, started as Deal, deal Christian Fellowship, just over 20 years ago to begin. Uh, and the Lord just carried on. But, you know... There are a lot of people that are caught up in churches where the word of God is not taught. And I think it's true that there is a great house, you know, the church as it is. And there are within there vessels of gold and silver, but there are also vessels of wood and earth. There are some to honour, some to dishonour. And it's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 13 about the wheat and the tares. You know, and individually people have to come to that point of realising that you're not going to change the system. And there, there comes a time where you need to purge yourself from those things. You know, and get out. And um, everybody individually needs to make that decision, but you won't change the system. And I think that by getting out, by purging yourself from it, as it says here, you should be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use. God will use you if you're faithful and you put your trust in Him. But I encourage anybody that you know, anybody that ends up listening to this audio, you know, if you're part of a church that does not teach the Word of God, get out and go somewhere that does. A servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. The point I just want to make here is that a servant of the Lord should be all of those things. You are servants of the Lord. And notice what we're told in that second line there, that you should be apt to teach. It's a really important point, because a lot of Christians think, oh, I, I can't teach. No, 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 you should teach. I'm not suggesting you come and stand up the front and teach, but there are people that the Lord will lay across your path that you can teach them. And you can teach them by a number of different things. By your example, by the things you say, by the, just the, the conversations you have with them. We are apt, should be apt to teach. In meekness, we should be instructing people that oppose. If God per revenge will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Well, this great passage in 2 Timothy 3, which speaks of the last days. Know this also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power there. From such, turn away. For of this sort... Are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with uh, sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth? We could spend a long time on that, but you know we are there. Those are the days that we live in now. 
Paul also says, yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And, you know, look, don't be surprised at the course that this world is taking, because it's going to happen. And also don't be surprised if we suffer persecution. That's going to happen too. Well, we know the scripture. I'm not going to read. You know it so well. How lovely, how wonderful, how perfect scripture is. All scripture given by inspiration of God. And it's there that we be complete. Again, 2 Timothy 4. You know the scripture. I don't need to read it to you. But Paul charging Timothy to preach the word in season, out of season. Again, the time will come. I believe the time has come when they don't endure sound doctrine. But people have now heaped up teachers for themselves to say what they want to hear. And then finally, Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. What a statement. I just, you know, that's how we want to finish, isn't it? Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, but to all them that love his appearing. You know what? I think we'll stop. Because I think there's enough there for us to, to take home and to meditate on. And then we'll, we'll look at the last two next week and we'll condense what we were going to do. We'll, we'll get it all in. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these lessons. Father, thank you for Timothy, this young man that was willing just to give his life to you. That realized that there was no better way to live than to live walking with you in obedience to you. And so, Jesus, we just thank you for these lessons, this incredible amount of instruction that's there for us as to how we should live our own lives, how the church should function and operate. Father, we just give you the honor and the glory. Father, we want to be vessels that are fit for the master's use. We want to be sanctified and set apart. And so, Father, even in our own lives, help us to just... Get rid of everything that is holding us back, everything that is not helpful, everything that would be contrary to your working and moving us forward. And Father, we pray you have a freedom to work and move in our lives. Father, Lord, we want to exercise ourselves in spiritual things. Lord, we don't want to be so focused on our physical needs, our physical situation, that we forget to put the effort and the emphasis on that which is eternal. And so, Lord, all these things, impress upon our hearts, we pray. Just keep us growing in knowledge and grace, that we may bring honour and glory to you. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.